who is the next generation of designers that are creating works that are going to illustrate what it is to be a designer at this time, whether that's expository things like tutorials or whether it's more didactic things like textbooks or essays or things of that nature. That really got me to thinking about really, I think, just people of color in general and how are we contributing to that. Hey everyone, welcome to Overtime, Dribble's official podcast. I'm Dan Cedarholm, your host, and today we're going to be talking with Maurice Cherry. He's the head of media at Glitch and host of the Revision Path podcast. Today we talk about Maurice's work in highlighting black designers. We talk about design organizations and kind of ask the question, do designers need to be certified? And we talk about how writing is important for designers and the next generation of design leadership. Also a bunch of great advice from Maurice. Let's get into it. Right now I'm on your page, uh, mauricecherry.com slash now, which by the way is awesome because it's got this crazy photo of you in the background that's rainbowish and it's like a bad VHS tape, but like in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool because it lists like everything you're doing right now, which I think is like, I wish every guest I had on here had this because it makes my job easy. But but um, yeah, I mean, you're right now you're, you're head of media, right? At Glitch. Yeah, that's right. I'm head of media at Glitch. Uh, For those who might not be familiar with Glitch, Glitch is a community and a website where you can find and discover the best stuff on the web, whether you want to build a simple app or you want to build a website or you just want to see what other people in the community have created. uh, You can find all of that on Glitch. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's super cool. I mean, it and I, I feel like the the goal of Glitch is like lofty in a good way. Like it's how do we get people creating designing and developing apps right and and sharing the code and having people be able to remix it there's a whole bunch of different things i love about it but um, how did you get involved in it initially well that's interesting so i started out at glitch as just a content marketer i was just writing for uh their blog writing about different apps that people in the community have created and when i say apps i'm not necessarily talking about a mobile application that you get from the Google Play Store or from the App Store. Um, App, in this instance, I'm talking about an overall web-based application or progressive web application or something to that effect, where you can play it in the browser, you can play it on mobile, et cetera. And even play, I think, is a bit of a a stretch because some things are games, some of these are tools, some of these are back-end things where you can make Slack bots and Alexa skills and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I started out as just a content marketer and then as I, you know, got deeper into the company and learned more about the product and everything, I, you know, sort of branched out, started doing more design-related things. And then now I've branched out into doing uh, more media-related things as the head of media at Glitch. Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, aside from Glitch, which is which is great and it obviously f- probably takes up a lot of your time, but you've got other these other projects as well. I mean, Revision Path, for instance, um you're a podcast host as well and yeah. um uh, which is awesome for me because i can pick your brain at some point about <laughs> <laughs> how to make this show better uh, because you've been doing that for a long time and um tell us about the motivation and, and inspiration was to to put it out sure 
So the initial motivation and inspiration behind Revision Path actually came from a previous project that I started in 2004 called the Black Weblog Awards. And what the Black Weblog Awards uh, was a way to recognize and showcase bloggers and podcasters, which were they were around back then, podcasters and even, you know, burgeoning video bloggers to recognize the work that they were doing in a way that, you know, could just sort of showcase the diversity that I thought was present in the blogosphere. I don't even know if people still use the term blogosphere anymore, but I'm... I, I do, actually. I'm bringing so it I'm back. Bring it. <laughs> Let's bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> and so in, in 2006, I was working actually at AT&T as a designer, and one of the new categories I wanted to add to the Black Weblog Awards was best blog design, because I was designing, you know, blog templates. I had friends of mine that designed blog templates for you know, movable type for back in the day for WordPress, et cetera. And I felt like we were doing great work, but just were not getting any sort of recognition. And I wanted to do something around what black designers were doing then, but I just did not have the time. I was working a full-time job. I was doing uh, the Black Web Blog Awards on the side and I was in graduate school. So I had a lot of things that were going on at that time that I just didn't have the bandwidth to pursue this other project. Sure, sure. It wasn't until... Seven years later, in 2013, and by this time I had quit AT&T, started my studio, and I had just hit the about the five-year mark at my studio called Lunch. And it was at this point when I decided I wanted to kind of revisit this idea. Like, well, I've got the time now, and you know, I've I've got the the space to do this, so let's let's get it started. And so initially, Revision Path was just a series of uh, long-form interviews, like a thousand to two thousand-word interviews with people. And that was a bit kind of hard to keep up because it was just me and, you know, trying to get people to answer questions back and forth over email proved to be a bit tedious. And it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until I want to say it was like June of that year when someone who had been reading Revision Path contacted me and she said that she would be in town and wanted to know if we could record an interview. And I had no recording equipment, but I said, sure, let's do it. And so we met up. I remember exactly where we recorded. It's at a restaurant here in Atlanta called One-Eared Stag in Inman Park. And we recorded the very first episode of Revision Path on my mobile phone at the time. I think it was a, a I think it was the Google G1, like the very first Google phone. I think it was wow. what I recorded it on. Whoa, whoa. I just had the phone on the table. So like the audio is terrible. You could hear every plate <laughs> and fork clink and move and it's really bad. I've kept it up just because I want people to see where this kind of started and how it's grown since then. Uh, But that was kind of the beginning of it. And so once I did that first episode, it became a lot easier to schedule people for maybe 60 to 90 minutes and talk to them rather than go back and forth over email over a few weeks to try to get a long form interview. And so once I got about, I want to say maybe about 15 interviews under my belt, that's when I initially just kind of transitioned revision path over into just a podcast. So it was kind of this hybrid mix of interview, long form interviews and podcasts for about six to nine months. And then I finally just kind of rebirthed it as a podcast. Um, and that was in uh, 2014. And so ever since then, we've had uh, weekly episodes with black designers, developers, creators, digital makers from all over the world. Uh, we've mostly, I think most of our audience, um, not audience, most of the guests are from here in the United States, but we managed to also talk to people 
throughout the Caribbean, throughout Europe, throughout Africa, um, Australia. I would love at some point this year if I could hit South America and Asia. Um, so we've managed to really kind of branch out into a lot of places. Um, and again, these are weekly episodes. We are, I think, uh, over, I'm sure, I, mean, I know it's over 275 episodes at this point. But, <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. So we've been keeping it going wow. for, um, it'll be six years at the end of February. It'll be our anniversary. That's fantastic. Wait, congrats, by the way. Jeez. Thank you. Uh, that's a lot of episodes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was it like starting it? You know, like, um, I, I started as a uh, you know, written interview and then went to podcast, but um, was the, was it difficult when it first started, or was the reaction to it initially like really, really positive? And oh no, it was terrible when I first started. The, re- the reaction was <laughs> was horrible because this was also at a time when conversations around diversity and technology and design started to reach ahead. And so, what I started to get back was a lot of uh, negative feedback about the show because people wanted to know why was I only talking to black designers. To which my retort would be, well, why is your show not talking to black designers? Like, I could look through your archive page and we're not there. So what's that about? Um, That's surprising that that there's negative. Yeah, we reached out to a a lot of design shows, some of which are still around. Uh, Reached out to a lot of them just not to um, try to get myself on their show, but more so just to kind of say, hey, we're here with this resource. If you're looking for people we've talked to these folks. So if you want to talk to them, I can kind of do an introduction. Like my whole thing when I started Revision Path was to make it be a platform for, you know, black designers and developers and stuff, period. It wasn't a platform for myself. Uh, And so I'm like, if I can get these other people on these other shows and then help kind of increase their reach out into the community, then that's, you know, that's even better. But no, we got a lot of negative pushback uh, in the beginning. I'd say certainly, in 2014 and 2015, um, I was really trying to do a lot of just collaborating with other design podcasters because the show was new. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I needed to do that in order to kind of stake some claim of legitimacy as to what I was doing. And what I was getting back was just a lot of, you know, negative feedback. You know, we don't talk about race, like all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't wow. until uh, 2015 when I presented at South by Southwest that the tide sort of turned. So I did a solo presentation at South by Southwest called where are the black designers? This was done in conjunction with AIGA because also at the time I served on AIGA's diversity and inclusion task force. And so being on the task force allowed me to gain access to certain archives and research that I was able to use in my presentation. So my presentation wasn't just, where are black designers? We don't see them. I backed it up with statistics and anecdotes and everything to show like, this is what the, uh, the community looks like. This is not a new conversation. This is something that's been going on for the better part of almost, you know, 30 years. And so the, we have to ask the question again, like, where are we? Cause it's not like we're just in the shadows or hiding. We're here, but maybe you're just not paying attention to us. And clearly these are what the numbers are showing. Like the industry itself is not set up socioeconomically to allow black designers to become more integrated into the community than what they already are. Like that's sort of what the the basis of the argument was for the presentation. 
you know, fast forward to, to now, you know, 2019 and do you, do you feel like it's different? The climate's different or no, hopefully better, but no. or worse. I don't know. I feel you tell like me people it. are more cognizant of the issue. I yeah. don't feel like the underlying socioeconomic factors have changed. I would, I would wager right. Um, right. they've probably gotten worse under our current administration just in terms of, of, you know, economic solvency and stuff. But, sure, you know, sure. for example, if pipelines are set up between uh, design schools and companies, but these design schools have tuitions of 40000 to $50,000 a year, but, you know, the Pew Research Institute is saying that the average Black family only has, you know, X number of thousand dollars of wealth, it kind of becomes a bit of a leap to even be in that presence where you can afford to attend this school, to be in this pipeline, to be part of the industry in this specific way. Um, but that's just one thing though. That's not an, an excuse overall. I mean, the good thing about this industry is that you can really become a designer just from your own bedroom and your own laptop. So those aren't things, you know, those educational institutions and things aren't stopping you from getting there. But I think when the issue comes from the industry, like, oh, we can't find black designers, we're looking at SVA and we're looking at Pratt and we're looking at these places. The question then becomes, why are you only looking at these sort of esteemed, hallowed institutions and not mm-hmm. in other parts of the community and other you know, groups or things of that nature? And so the other part of the conversation uh, with the presentation was to show, hey, here's where these pockets are and here's where you can find them. So it wasn't just giving you a problem or presenting the problem. It was also presenting a solution as well. Hmm. So I, so yeah, wow. I gave that yeah. at, uh, at South by Southwest and there were a lot of companies there that were in attendance. Although I should say the presentation itself was sparsely attended. I think there were maybe about 15 or 20 people there. <laughs> um, South by Southwest has this really uh, nefarious habit and I'll, I'll call it out. I don't care. Cause I'm not speaking to South by again, but South by has this really <laughs> nefarious habit of putting all of the diversity programming in the farthest end of the convention center on the top floor. Oh, jeez! And so you really have uh. to trek to get all the way to nine ABC and the people who know this, know this, you have to trek there and you basically have to camp out, in that part of the convention center, if you want to catch a lot of the diversity programming. And now granted South by Southwest now has ballooned well outside of the Austin convention center. There are places that are all over the city. I would wager that makes it even more difficult because now you've got, you know, uh, programming in all these other places. You're never going to be able to catch everything at the same time. It's just, it's kind of a big mess. So my presentation had about, you know, 15, 20 people in it. Some people were asleep. Some people just popped in to charge their phone <laughs> oh, geez. But but oh, for man. the ones that were there, they actually came and talked to me afterwards. So, for example, uh, Forrest Young, who's the head of design at Wolf Olin's, uh, we had representatives that were there from Facebook, from Pinterest, from I think there was someone there from Dell. And so th- I got to talk to them Ex- after excellent. the presentation. Yeah. And so they, of course, wanted to know more and wanted to learn about what I was doing and things of that nature. And so that was the turning point where I saw, you know, why am I trying to chase these other design podcasts when I can just stay in this lane and just make my show the best it can be for what it is. And so that's kind of when my mindset changed to just focus on making the best show that I can with what I have and then utilize resources from within that instead of trying to, you know, kind of seek this collaboration from the design community that I wasn't getting. 
And what ended up happening was in years later is that now those, well, not those same outlets, but certainly other parts of the design community then came to me because they saw what I was doing and I didn't have to sort of seek them out. I wanted to take a quick time out just to tell you a little bit about our upcoming event in New York. We're bringing Hang Time to New York City in June. Hang Time are our events where we have tons of speakers. The whole Dribble team is there. Uh, it's a wonderful time. We hope to see you in June. Just stay tuned to dribble.com slash hangtime where we'll be announcing uh, the dates and the speakers and uh, all the details. And uh, we hope to see you in New York. One of the themes that pops up in on this show, actually, um, sort of un- unintentional, but a lot of successful designers and, and creative people, there, there seems to be a drive to, to share that and share what they're learning and, um, you know, share like, um, or just like, I'm hearing you talk about Revision Path and how you, you wanted to shine a light on, uh, on folks that, that um, you know, maybe didn't have a light shining on them. Like, where does that drive come from in, in your in your life? You know, like in terms of you're not just designing, you're not just creating things, but you're actually like that has a purpose too, right behind it. Well, I feel like you know, there's work out there for all of us. We just have to kind of go and find it. Um, and I think what kind of just ends up being that barrier is really just having the opportunity. And for many of the people whom I've had on the show just that interview is the opportunity to help elevate them to whatever the next thing might be, because people may look at the show and think, Oh, you know, it's just a show. They might think that it's small or whatever, but a lot of people are listening. So they may find out about who you are from this show and want to learn more. And then maybe that means they book you for a gig or they want you to come speak or they want to hire you or, you know, anything like that. Um, And I just feel like if I'm building this platform, and again, this not being for me, because I feel like in my own professional life, I was doing, I think I was doing pretty good. I mean, I feel like we all feel like we could be doing better, but I think I was doing pretty good. And so I wasn't doing this as some sort of way to make myself look better. I'm like, there's so many people out there that are in all different parts of the country, of the world. They just need somebody to know who they are and what they're doing, you know? And so this interview as, you know, benign as it may seem, is something where people can find out about what you're passionate about, what your process is about. And because it's, it's presented in this way, that's not a static website or a basic resume. People really get a sense of who you are as a person and not just as a set of hands that can do tasks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I love that. I, I, it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, that's always been the most for for dribble for me. That's always been the most satisfying part of you know helping the community and just sh- trying to shine a light on folks. You know, not based on popularity or whatever. Just sort of like giving people a platform, yeah, to 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 get to the next thing. So I my hats off to you. It's it's awesome. Thank what you. You've, what you've created and and f- for for so many years too. Now I mean it's. Um, persistence yeah i mean right along (laughs) with doing um and i should mention this right along with doing revision path in 2014 we also started uh this this sort of sister site called 28 days of the web and so with with 28 days of the web in february what we do is we just do a small profile on a different black designer developer somewhere in the world 
And February is a great time to do it. There's 28 days. So we have 14 men, 14 women, equal parity, you know, along the board. For leap year, we mm-hmm. throw in, you know, an additional person. And so we've done that since 2014. We'll be coming up on our sixth installment this year. Great class of people that are going to be coming up. I can't wait for folks to check that out. I love, so I love that you, you know, the name of your talk at South by was where are the black designers, but then you're, you're like answering the question, right? You're, yeah. or you're helping to answer the question by, by these things. It's, it's super great. Cause I think, you know, aside from in my presentation where I said, you know, there are these Facebook groups and meetups and things like that. Of course, I also plug revision path because I'm like, yeah, we're also here. But like the purpose of the presentation wasn't just to plug the show. You know, right, it's right, it's part of right. that. Like people certainly can check it out and people have checked it out. But it's more so just to show that we're in more places than you think. And so if you're only looking in these, you know, one or two spots and not finding what you're looking for, like maybe you need to, you know, kind of adjust your lens and look in other places. Yeah. Open up your circle of whatever you're looking through. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned AIGA and that you were on a, on a it was a task force i believe you said yeah the diversity and inclusion task force yeah yeah and um and then you also i think it's last year you received a Stephen Heller award from AGA yeah it was uh, both myself and uh Allison Arief who's a, a creative director um we both received the the Stephen Heller prize for cultural commentary cultural commentary right yeah which is which is fantastic congrats on that too thank you um it's the first time they've done it for a podcast, too. Is it really? Oh, yeah, because it's, awesome. it's usually a writing prize. So the first person who won it uh-huh. uh, was Ann Quito, who I think at the time was doing design writing for the New York Times. She might still be doing that. And then Allison does writing. She's you know done books, magazines, et cetera. So for me to have done it and it's for a podcast, I think, is is pretty dope. That's, that's super <laughs> great. Now uh, this is a, a leading question, but uh, okay, how, what's your involvement with AIGA <laughs> today? Um, I am no longer a member of AIGA. Uh, yeah. I recently discovered that my membership had been uh, terminated about ten days after I got my award, and I didn't know this at the what? time. <laughs> I, I did not know that at the time. Yeah. I was still doing things with AIGA. I had been to AIGA headquarters, excuse me, I had been to AIGA headquarters, sat down with the then executive director, you know, and her and I are still like super cool and everything. So it's not like I wasn't still doing things for the organization. I was no longer a member of the task force. That was something that I had, uh, I only did a three-year stint with them. So back in 2017, I was no longer with them uh, as of, I think, July of 2017. But I was still doing things with AIGA. I was going to different chapters whenever I was in a different city. I would try to meet up with uh, people from other chapters and just, you know, try to break bread and learn about what the design community is like where they are. So it wasn't like I wasn't still doing things on behalf of the organization. So when I discovered that, um, it was a bit surprising. I only discovered it because I needed to change my credit card. I had to change my (laughs) credit card information that I logged in. It's like, oh, I'm not a member anymore. And when I saw that, I had to decide if I wanted to become a member again. And with that, I had to sort of reassess what does AIGA, what significance does that organization have on my current life as a creative? Mm -hmm. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not actively designing anymore. Now I'm working in media. But then as I think back to 
even the volunteer work that I've done, the uh, experiences I've had with different chapters, et cetera, I had to think, is this something that's really for me right now? And so I decided it wasn't, and I didn't renew. Um, I know that they're going through some changes right now in terms of leadership. Uh, I'm not sure where they stand with that in terms of finding a new executive director. I think they have someone in the interim right now. Um, But one thing that I I certainly got from people throughout the time when I did serve with AIGA is sort of questioning the importance of the organization to the modern designer. Um, Yeah, sure. I think AIGA as an organization has always struggled with diversity, Um, always. And this is not just from what I know right now, but even when I was doing my research for my presentation, I could see that they were struggling with it back in like the 90s. So historically, the the organization has always kind of had problems with that. Uh, And one thing when I was on the task force that we were trying to do was like actually have a diversity and inclusion fellow at headquarters. Like we had put together a proposal. It was me and a couple of other people trying to put together a proposal to hire someone to take this seriously. And I think they ended up hiring someone for a while, but they were kind of uh, kind of pigeonholed. They couldn't really do much outside of that one particular role. And I, what I also found is that I think diversity and inclusion in terms of the importance with the organization changes with whomever is the leader, whatever the leadership looks like. And so I would always have black designers ask me like, well, why should I join? And oftentimes I couldn't really give them a convincing answer. I mean, I could tell them why I was a part of it, but I can't say that they would join and get those same benefits. Largely, people were apprehensive because they had bad experiences with their individual chapter. That includes me as well. They they had a bad experience with their individual chapter that made them not want to become a member. I ended up getting recruited uh, from the national board from someone else. Like my local chapter had nothing to do with my current involvement at the time with oh, AIGA. Yeah. And so even, you know, there are other issues that have come across with AIGA as to like, how do they view UX designers? I know that there was a, a conversation that went on maybe about a year or so ago between uh, Timothy Bard Levins, who does UX at Microsoft in Seattle and AIGA about kind of where the organization places UX designers in terms of whom they consider designers. Um, Are product designers someone that AIGA considers? You know, when we look at a lot of where modern design is right now, it kind of comes out of Silicon Valley in New York, and it comes out of this very kind of product-based mindset. Does that work well with an organization that's mostly about print, you know? Um, Right. Right. And so those were sort of the kinds of things that I was thinking about when it came time for me to renew my membership. Like, I don't know if this is something that really serves me anymore as a creative. And so I just I just didn't join again. Huh. Yeah. That brings up a lot of interesting questions about organizations and their role and how they've evolved. Right. Since, uh, you know, from print days to current like design means so much yeah. so much more you know today than it did 50 years ago and and AIGA is an old organization they're over 100 years old yeah. Um, yeah and unfortunately they have not really changed with the times that much in terms of being able to um i think really be a steward and a partner and a voice for modern designers 
a lot of that I think just stems from leadership. I, I know I can tell you personally from just the times that I spent with the task force, there were lots of things that we tried to accomplish that we just couldn't get done because it was just held up in red tape. You know, there were webinars we wanted to have and initiatives we wanted to do and things that things of that nature where we couldn't even really tell people the stuff that we were doing because it would just get held up in some sort of way by someone else further up the chain at headquarters. And, you know, it, it got to be very bureaucratic in a way that it shouldn't have been because we're all volunteering. Like, don't treat us like employees. We're not getting paid. All of us could walk off right now <laughs> and you would have nobody. So let's, right, let's be cautious right. of people's times. We're all working adults here. <laughs> um, but I think I just wonder like what design organizations out there are really, I guess, uh, viable for modern designers. And I don't know if there are any that really kind of, I guess, stake that claim, at least here in the U S I should say that, uh, I think in Canada, it's a different story. I think they have two agencies. One is uh, RGD, and I forget what the other one is, but there are these certain kind of placement tests that you take. And so then if you're a member and you have on your resume that you're like RGD level, what have you, that signifies to that employer or whomever that, oh, well, you come with this set of skills to the table. I see. Like I said, more, more of a certification, right? It's more really, of a certification. Yeah. And I know that uh, Mike Montero, for example, has been someone that has been trying to sort of start this conversation about should designers be certified? Um, Mike Montero is also someone who has spoken against AIGA. And <laughs> I sort of feel like now if you're an AIGA member and you apply at a company, it really doesn't mean anything. Uh, I think I said before we were recording, like you're, you're kind of like saying you're a member of the Subway Sub Club. If you're a member of AIGA, it's like, oh, me too. Like it doesn't really, it, it doesn't connote any level of your professional ability, your time in the industry, or your standards or ethics to that company. And I think that's in large part because AIGA has largely failed with trying to make themselves a part of the business design community in that way so that, you know, Maybe a, well, I guess maybe like an HP or an Adobe, maybe more design focused companies like that. But like if you apply a Dropbox and you say you're an AIGA member, I don't know if that really sets you apart. Right. So so maybe there's there's room for uh, an organization that that is more certification based or skills based. Right. I think so. But then also the question is, do we even need that? You know, sort of as, as you know, we spoke to before. The beauty of being a designer, at least here in, and this is a, a largely U.S.-centric viewpoint here, the beauty of being able to be a designer here is that you don't need to have went to like a four-year institution or anything. As long as you've got the skills, right, you can right. you can like get ahead. Of course, you'd have to have the opportunity and you know work your way up, but the 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 barrier to entry is not as high as it would be in other places. I mean, certainly I know from talking with designers in other countries where their design culture is not as, I guess, open to newcomers as it is here, or maybe it's more commerce-based. So if you get a job, it can only be in advertising. You know, you're not necessarily a freelancer or something to that effect. So, you know, we, I think we kind of have it made here <laughs> in that way, and that we really, <laughs> if you have... You know, good if you have good skills with Sketch or with Figma or Photoshop or what have you, and you've got a good portfolio and you apply somewhere, you can probably get noticed, whereas in other places that might not be the case. And so while we think about, you know, the viability of design organizations, the question also should be, at least here, 
is that something we really even need? Like, what are the needs of the modern designer that a professional organization can advocate for? Is it unions? Is it fair wages? Is it fair hours? Like, what are those things? You know, certainly if you're like an architect or a doctor or a dentist or something, you have your governing licensing body organization. You've got, you know, AIA, ADA, AMA, et cetera. If you're just like a product designer in Austin, you know, like right. <laughs> like who's advocating <laughs> for your work as a designer in that way? Like, so I think those are questions. Well, it's good that we can't we can't harm people with with bad design. Um, um well, actually, no, well, no, we let's, yeah, let's. <laughs> now, if that's a conversation we want to have, we can certainly have that conversation because certainly I think <laughs> if there's anything that we've seen within the past two and a half years is that design can be weaponized. Um, in a way that can have disastrous results nationwide. That's true. Fake news. So you could use that as an argument that that it would be helpful to have some kind of certification. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. But but these are conversations <laughs> and questions that you know are are kind of I think worth asking. You know, people people rag on AIGA a lot, and I get it. <laughs> I get it. I do. But then also, it's like, do we even need an AIGA like organization? And if we do, what are they? going to be tasked with helping us with as designers? Is it just so we can be taken more seriously or are there other needs that we have as a governing professional body that a professional organization can advocate for? That's an interesting question. You know, you uh, just to switch gears slightly, you know, you, I think you mentioned earlier before we started recording um, that that writer about writing, yeah, and how important writing what writing is, mm-hmm. and that you know more writers should be designers or maybe be considered designers. But I wonder if we could could go there for a little bit because I thought that was interesting. Sure, interesting. So this was something which really came to me. Well, I'm not going to say it came to me when I got the award. That's not true. I used to teach design back in, oh my god, like 2010, 2011. I actually used to recommend one of your books to my students. I told you this one. Uh, I told you this earlier. <laughs> I used right. to recommend that's one right. of your books. Um, but I would always <laughs> stress to my students then that it was important for them to at least be able to write and communicate their ideas. It's not just enough to be able to design a website, but like content mm-hmm. is part of that. Like content has to fill in the gaps between your pretty images and your nice layout. So you have to consider that as you design. So and they just they just didn't even think about it, you know. But in that respect, we're looking at content as a utility. Now, when I won the Stephen Heller Prize last year, that got me to thinking about what are the contributions that designers are making towards like the corpus of design history. Certainly, as I've been podcasting and I've been talking to many people, I've had the opportunity to meet a number of design luminaries, like face to face. Of course, Stephen Heller, you know, for the eponymous award, um, Debbie Millman, Paula Scher, Eddie Opara, Seymour Schwartz. Like I've gotten to meet, you know, Susan Kerr. I've gotten to meet like some of the titans of design, like people that have tons of books written about them or they've written tons of books. They're in magazines. They've done interviews, et cetera. I've gotten to meet them and it got me to thinking, and this might be a little morbid, but it's like, okay, who's going to be the generation after them? Like, they're not going to live on forever. Maybe, of course, their work will, but who's the next generation of designers that are putting out 
the books that are writing this sort of stuff because a lot of what we're doing is digital. So of course we've got, you know, all this digital ephemera with websites and things of that nature, but like who's writing books? I think Timothy Goodman's writing books. I'm trying to think who else, I don't know, Jessica Hish probably, but like who is out there like yeah, putting true, out yeah, Jessica, yeah. Uh, Sagmeister? I'm sure oh, of course Sagmeister is, but um, yep. who is the next generation of designers that are creating works that are going to illustrate what it is to be a designer at this time, whether that's, expository things like tutorials or whether it's more didactic things like textbooks or essays or things of that nature. <clears throat> and so that really got me to thinking about really, I think just people of color in general and how are we contributing to that? I mean, we have this digital medium that's the internet and that's great, but like there's still libraries and there's still schools and things of that nature where maybe it's not really being used as much as we're using it in major metropolitan areas. Um, and also in other countries, you know, that work could be translated in some sort of way. And so one of the projects that I have for this year, which I guess I can I can talk about it here. It's, it's, it's starting to to materialize <laughs> is that Excellent. I am um, I'm working on putting together a digital anthology of design writers of color. Um, we're going to start out with just one version. Hopefully it'll be I, I hope to have it released by the end of this year. But start out with a few people and I want them to just write about, well, we'll see what they write about. I'm not sure who they're going to write about. I don't want them to just do tutorials. You know, <laughs> certainly I don't, I don't want that, but I want to be able to start finding out who that next generation of people are, or at least inspire that next generation to start putting work out there. Um, one thing that I used to do on revision path is that we had a blog and I would hire writers to write about design topics. We had, I think, during the tenure that we had our blog, I want to say we had about 15 to 16 writers. And so they were putting out, you know, original pieces, maybe every week, maybe every month, something like that. But the work was out there so people could see like, oh, these are designers that are writing. Maybe they're writing about a project that they've worked on or they're writing about entrepreneurship or they're writing about branding or anything. But they're just putting something out there. Um I want to be able to create a platform, at least to start off, that will allow me to find who that next generation is that's going to be contributing to design history in that way. Wow, this sounds fantastic! It's a it's a <laughs> it's a big project. I'm really looking forward to really kind yeah. of getting it started. I've just kind of been right now getting my footing with things that are going on at work, but certainly I think by March we'll start kind of really like putting it out there so people if they want to get involved, can find out more about it. That's amazing. Um, I, I love, it's a great, another great question. Hey, you're asking all sorts of great questions. <laughs> uh, you know, like what's the next gen? Yeah. Who, what's the next generation of, you know, leadership, I guess, in design. And um, so much has changed over, you know, it, it's moving so quickly. It's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to even imagine, but um, yeah. I got to, you know, and, and with a question for you about advice for, because you've been in the industry for a long time and, and uh, you've put a lot of teams together, you know, you've been in charge of putting teams together mm -hmm. and, and just like, wh what's some advice for, for up and coming designers out there to, to, to get ahead, to move ahead, you know? I feel like the, the easiest advice I can give is to just keep all of your stuff up to date. Like if you're on LinkedIn, or if you're on Dribbble, for example, make sure your contact information is correct. 
make sure you're putting out whatever the latest work is. I actually set a calendar reminder for myself. You mentioned my my now page on my website. I, I have a calendar invite to remind myself every month to update something, like make sure the contact form on your website is working. Make sure that the email is spelled correctly. (laughs) You know, that is if you want to be contacted. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there are people that are in positions and maybe they're happy where they are and they don't want to be bothered and that's fine. At least say that, (laughs) you know, not accepting solicitations, you know, something to that effect. But uh, certainly I know this from just doing the, the podcast and trying to book people. It's always amazing that people feel like they've been hidden in some sort of way. Like you've got a website, you've got a LinkedIn profile, et cetera. And I contact them and they're like, how did you find me? Like, well, your information is out there on the web. Did you not want to be found? I I would say if there's one thing that (laughs) one piece of advice I would give is just make sure your contact information is up to date. If you want to be contacted, if you don't want to be contacted, certainly at least say that much, but I'm, I'm wondering how many people might be missing out on opportunities because they don't even know their contact form doesn't work or they've misspelled their email address and wonder why nobody's getting back to them about stuff. Uh, I certainly, I know that I've talked to designers where that's been the case. And as soon as they fixed it, stuff started pouring in. It's like, just, just check your stuff. I mean, we don't always know. We're not keeping an eye on our websites 24 seven at the very least, just set a reminder for yourself to just check everything. And it'll probably take you five or 10 minutes to do. Check your LinkedIn, check your website, check something else, check, you know, check your dribble, your Behance, what have you, and just make sure that it's up to date. Make sure your contact information is up to date and just keep that up to date. I love it. It's so simple, but so crucial. I, I have to agree too. Like there nothing drives me crazier than finding someone somewhere and maybe they go to their Twitter page, for instance, and there's nothing else about them on the Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like there's no link. There's no, there's not even a bio. There's just, it's sort of a dead end. And like, I guess like, you know, trying to avoid creating those dead ends. Yeah. And like I say, if that's intentional, like maybe say that, maybe make it a pinned tweet or something, but just have something in a way where if you want to be contacted, that's great. If you don't want to be contacted, that's fine too. It really doesn't take a lot of time to do. And I think it's just a simple piece of advice that I would give. I'm not, I'm not giving anything like super lofty because I still feel like we're all out here trying to figure it out because this community and industry changes so much. The one thing you can at least keep control over is how people contact you. I love it, Maurice. Um, man, uh, this time went by quick. There's so much more to talk about, so we'll have to do it again sometime. But thank you so much for uh, for being with us today and sharing a little bit of your story. Oh, Dan, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. As always, thanks for listening, everybody. Really appreciate it. If you could rate and or review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, Uh, We'd love it. That really helps us out a lot. Um, We want to thank you again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.